Hello, everyone. We're going to get started. Welcome to the panel on democratic public ownership here at the World Transformed. Thank you all for coming on this beautiful morning. My name is Thomas Hanna from the Democracy Collaborative in the United States. You've probably heard a few times by now, but before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that the World Transformed is a space for camaraderie debate, so please be respectful to each other and to all of our panelists. In a moment, we're going to hear from Hillary Wainwright, Kat Hobbs, and Andrew Towers. Hillary is the founding editor of Red Pepper Magazine and a fellow at the Transnational Institute. She's an author and leading expert on strengthening democracy and participation in public services, dating back to her time with the GLC. She's also the author of a new book, A New Politics from the Left, which is available from the Red Pepper stand and... News from Nowhere, the brilliant local bookshop. News from Nowhere. <laughs> Kat is the founder and director of We Own It, a group that has been organizing to end privatization and expand public ownership in various sectors in the UK. And Andrew is head of political strategy at the CWU, and will be talking about renationalizing Royal Mail. Andrew Cumbers from the University of Glasgow was on the program as well, but unfortunately, he's not able to join us today. So at this point, you may be wondering why a guy with an American accent is introducing a panel about democratic public ownership. Probably like many of you, I grew up believing that the United States was the beating heart of free market capitalism with little interest in alternative economic forms. Then I started researching about the topic and I found out that the US actually has a robust tradition of public ownership, especially at the local level. So I wrote a book about how prevalent and resilient public ownership is in the United States and what countries like the UK might learn from the US experience. It's called Our Commonwealth and it has just come out from Manchester University Press here in the UK. I won't go into too much detail, but I just wanted to give a couple quick examples. First, in Nebraska, which is a very politically conservative state in the United States, every single resident and business gets their electricity from a publicly owned utility or a cooperative. Second, around 85% of all Americans get their water from a publicly owned provider, which is, I think, a little bit different from here in the UK. All of our commercial airports are publicly owned, all of our passenger rail service, our post office, and so on and so forth. And just like in many other parts of the world, public ownership is returning to mainstream political and economic debate in the United States. We have campaigns to remunicipalize electric utilities, reverse water privatizations, establish public banks, and set up public internet companies. However, what we don't have is a major political party that is committed to large-scale program of public ownership. Under Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, Labor has stated that they, will, that they intend to renationalize Royal Mail, water, energy, and the railways, as well as set up a national investment bank and a network of regional development banks. However, as John McDonald said yesterday in his conference speech, nationalization will not be just a return to the past. Under McDonald and Rebecca Long Bailey, the party is beginning a consultative process to start thinking about how to democratize public-owned enterprises and how to give real powers to workers, consumers, and local councils. And so with that, I will turn it over to our panel to discuss some of these issues, starting with Kat Hobbs from We Own It, and we should have plenty of time for questions afterwards. Thank you. Thanks, Thomas, <clears throat> and thanks for inviting me. Um, if anybody hasn't checked out Thomas's book, it's really, really great. It's really exciting. And there it is right there. Um, amazing to be looking to the US to see incredible examples of public ownership. Um, so I definitely recommend that. So John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn are bringing down the ideology of privatization. And I'm gonna talk a bit about that and then a bit about what democratic public ownership might look like. 
These bold, brave policies are completely changing the debate here. Policies to take back our water, take back our energy, take back our Royal Mail. And the evidence shows that privatisation fails again and again and again. And people know that. I think we all know that instinctively. We know that when our services get privatised, we pay more, we get less, and we lose any kind of democracy over things that should belong to us. But we've been told for 30 plus years that it has to be this way. So we're, we get told by the Adam Smith Institute while we're standing at a train platform paying ever more for our train ticket that actually we need more privatization. We get told by the Institute of Economic Affairs that our NHS is failing when actually it's the government that is drastically underfunding our NHS and destroying it piece by piece. We get told by the Taxpayers' Alliance that companies like G4S and Carillion and Serco and Capita are just one bad apple and really the system's working fine. And we even get told by the Social Market Foundation that bringing water into public ownership, it would be far too expensive. And yet we still don't believe this free market bullshit. I couldn't think of another word. <laughs> I don't believe it, you don't believe it, we don't believe it. And so we need to start telling those people who sold off our public services that we're taking them back. And those people who are undermining our public services that we're taking them back. And the shareholders, I think we need to tell them that they've had enough now and they need to step aside. And the regulators need to find a new job. Because 83% of us want public ownership of water. 77% of us want public ownership of energy. 76% want public ownership of rail. 67% want public ownership of Royal Mail. And 84% want public ownership of our NHS. And let's be very, very clear. These things belong to us. Our public services have always belonged to us. So it's absolutely fantastic that John McDonnell is talking about bringing water into public ownership. But he's in a difficult situation where he has to decide how much to compensate shareholders. And what we would say is, let's not compensate them the market value of the shares, which is around 37 billion because that's based on exploiting people. That market value is based on ripping us off year after year. Let's not compensate them for the book value, which is the money that they put in. Let's not compensate them for what the water industry is asking for, which is 90 billion pounds. I say we give them zero. Water falls from the sky. If it belongs to any of us, it belongs to all of us. It should never, ever have been privatised. And what we've seen, and water is a classic example, which is why I want to focus on water a bit today, is that the water companies have a horrendous track record. They've increased our bills by 40%. They've polluted our rivers with raw sewage. They are leaking 20 to 25% of our water because they can't be bothered to invest properly in infrastructure because they're too busy 
making money with complex financial structures and dodging tax and returning billions of pounds to shareholders every year. They're not working for us, and we don't owe them anything. And actually, if anything, after the last 30 years, they should be compensating us. And let's also be clear that this isn't a radical idea, actually. It's only seen as a radical idea by people who don't understand that public services are natural monopolies. We all know that water comes from the tap. We don't get a consumer choice over it. We don't get a choice over where our train comes from. Actually, these things are not areas where we have choice and where we are consumers. We are citizens. And also, this is only seen as extreme by people who don't understand that some things like your child's education, your parents' care, your local hospital are not all about money. And public services, I believe, are the most precious, best thing humans have ever, ever invented. So when those right-wing think tanks funded by billionaires tell us that public ownership isn't possible, they're completely wrong. And when they tell us that this is extreme, they're completely wrong because we're talking here about a mixed economy, which might not sound that exciting, but most people think it's a really good idea and it's a middle-of-the-road idea that public services that we should own, we pay for, we use, we rely on, we work in should belong to us. Public ownership is already happening. Thomas's book has loads of good examples in it. It's happening right here in the UK with Channel 4, the BBC, Ordnance Survey, the Met Office, Royal Mint, Scottish Water. These are all examples of publicly owned institutions working really well. We have 10 councils who run their own municipal bus companies and do a brilliant job. There are hundreds of cities and communities around the world that are taking control of their water and energy in a really exciting movement of remunicipalization. The only problem with the movement is the word remunicipalization, right? It's like not the best word, but it's really exciting. And we also know that public ownership can work because we see on our railways here in the UK that state-owned companies from other countries are running our railways but apparently we are not allowed to run our own. Literally, by law, we're not allowed to run our railway except as last resort. That's how deep the ideology goes. I started We Own It in 2013, and I had no idea how we would get anywhere near public ownership. We've helped to run campaigns on the land registry. We ran a campaign to save NHS professionals from privatisation and we've been working on bringing the East Coast into public ownership back in 2013 and more recently, which has happened. Amazing. But with this labor, this, with this, with this labor team, with this labor manifesto, we're on the cusp of huge victories, completely transforming the economy. And when John McDonald becomes chancellor, when, not if, fingers crossed, we need to be there to back him up and show how incredibly popular these policies are because he is going to be up against it. There are serious vested interests here. And what I think we really need to think about now is how do we make this public ownership much more successful than any public ownership we've ever seen before? 
We need it to be so wildly, incredibly successful that no Tory government, and I know we don't want to think about a Tory government coming after John McDonnell, that's incredibly depressing, but we want no Tory government to ever be able to dismantle the amazing publicly owned institutions that we put in place. So we need our new public ownership to be more democratic and accountable, more innovative and entrepreneurial, more green, more caring. It just needs to be much better than anything we've ever done before. We need to build on the amazing work of the public sector and we need to make it even better. So I just want to talk a bit about what that might look like in the case of water. So we're here in the area of United Utilities. Um, that's the water company with the monopoly um, in this area. And they've been in the news over the summer because they were threatening a hosepipe ban. Um, and, you know, they're about as bad as all of the rest of them. Um, but what would it look like if we took United Utilities into public ownership? How would that feel? How would that work? And I think there's four key things that we need to think about here. We need to think about structure and governance. So in Paris, uh, they brought water into public ownership in 2011, and they have a democratic company with democratic representation, but also representation of citizens and workers. And they also have what they call an observatoire, very French, um, obviously. Uh, and the observatoire has lots of different representatives of important groups, so consumer groups, environmental groups, tenants associations, housing associations, experts and scientists who are thinking about the geography of the area. So there's all kinds of people involved in that ob observatoire and they use that to hold the company to account. And then they have public monthly meetings where everyone can come along and ask questions of the water company. And we could do the same with United Utilities. I think the second thing is about mission. So one of the amazing things about public ownership is we can use public ownership to achieve the kind of results we want to see in our society. So in terms of the environment, let's stop water companies from pouring raw sewage into our rivers. That would be a really great start. Let's make sure that they're investing to reduce leaks so that we're actually conserving water. Water's going to get more scarce. We need water companies that are on our side with dealing with that and helping to conserve water by investing properly. And we need the new United Utilities to really be thinking about climate change and how to tackle climate change. So we know that Scottish Water, for example, is really investing in renewable energy and it's generating much more energy than it uses. And United Utilities could do the same. In terms of social objectives, we could have, as they do in Paris, uh, access points for homeless people to get water. Obviously, not having homeless people would be better, but it's a good start. Um, reducing bills, they've reduced bills by 8%, and they make sure that bills are affordable for people on low income. They have still and sparkling water fountains, so we could have them in Liverpool, around the city. Um, I mean, sparkling is quite fancy, but I think we want to have, you know, socialism with a sparkle. We want to have a public water company...
We want to have a public water company that is a shining example of how amazing public ownership can be. And there are lots of public toilets. And that's obviously really basic, but it's something that water companies can help with. Um, they can also open up reservoirs for people to swim in, which I think is a really amazing idea. That's, that's just a matter of cost, and they could do that by not giving profits to their shareholders. And then economically, obviously, we need public ownership to be about making a surplus, running efficiently, but then reinvent, reinvesting that surplus in making sure that we have a fantastic service. The third thing um, is that we need to think about mechanisms. So we need real transparency over the new United Utilities. Uh, we need to know what people are being paid and why, and have some sense of that as the public. So right now, uh, Steve Mogford, the head of United Utilities, is paid 2.3 million. Uh, he's got a yacht in Spain, and when he was threatening the hosepipe ban, he was sort of heading off to his yacht in Spain, so he didn't have to worry about watering his garden, but everybody else did. Um, that will not be the case in the, in the new United Utilities. We need to make sure that we have a fantastic CEO who is paid a reasonable, reasonable salary to do a brilliant job. And we need open data in all the things that the new company is doing. So we need to know about their performance on all of the social, environmental, economic indicators. And maybe we could have a league table of water companies across the country and encourage them to compare each other. Um, and maybe even a kite mark to say, you know, the public is behind this water company. We think it's great. Uh, we also need to have meaningful consultation, obviously. Monthly public meetings are a really great start. Maybe also shopfronts in cities and towns where people can turn up and find out about what their water company is doing. And we need, I think, some kind of mechanism by which the public can say, we're really not happy right now. So if we have a petition and it's got this level of support, then something will be done and this water company will take a long, hard look at themselves and work out how to improve. Because we are talking about monopolies here, and so we have to think about what the mechanisms will be to make sure that they work really, really brilliantly. And finally, I think we need to think about culture. So I'd love to see a world where when people graduate from university, instead of wanting to go and work at KPMG, they want to go and work at United Utilities because it is cutting edge, it's amazing, it's a wonderful place to work, and it's full of people who understand the value of good public services. And so we might want to think about having some kind of national service. It's an idea, you know, after university or before university, you spend a few months in a public service institution learning about how that works, learning about why it's so important and what it means to our country. So those are some ideas about what the U new United Utilities might look like. I'd love to hear yours. We Own It is running a campaign right now to support the ideas on public ownership of water because we see it as a huge game changer. And we've just launched a People's Plan for Water, which is online. You can check out your water company and you can give your ideas for what you want to see your water company doing. We have to make this genuinely democratic and something that people really feel they have some kind of ownership over. So as well as the People's Plan for Water,
We're also holding a conference, Public Ownership 2.0, on the 10th of November, and I'd love to see you there too. I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, it's fantastic to be asked to think about what the future looks like, how we can make public ownership really democratic, and together we will own these public services, and we will be at the heart of these public services when we do. Thank you. So I just stop. Well, that was brilliant. And I think socialism with a sparkle, that's fantastic. I think that should be the next manifesto theme, socialism with a sparkle. It's great. And I think the turnout here, which is fantastic, and everybody, I can see by everybody's faces the excitement and enthusiasm as Kat was speaking, is a sign that, you know, through the work of We Own It, through left-wing think tanks based in Manchester, like the Centre for uh, Local Economic Strategy, like books like Thomas's book, you know, there is a new, and, and the kind of leadership that John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn are giving, there is a new common sense emerging which really values the public. You know, after, what, too long to think about, sort of worship at the altar of the private and that sort of idea that the private equals efficiency and the public equals, you know, chaos or Stalinism or whatever. We now have a situation where, you know, it's the private that equals chaos and the public equals you know, care, ethics, there's some sense now of economic ethics, some sense of solidarity, which I think, you know, is, is what we've got to build on. Um, so I wanted to say something a bit more about deepening Kat's um, really wonderful opening on um, democratizing uh, public services. Because I think now we do develop, we are developing a new understanding of public efficiency as distinct from... Um, private profit as being the kind of criteria for economic success. And I think also we're, we're reconstructing through the leadership of John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, but also through all the initiatives coming from below, we're reconstructing the idea of the public and, and the social in a way that is, is moving away from the state as equaling the social and the state being seen as sort of above. And, the, and reconstructing an idea of the social based on solidarity and mutuality, which in turn builds on the kind of spontaneous forms of solidarity that we see, particularly in a city like Liverpool, you know, that fantastic campaign to, to, to stop the sun, to, to boycott the sun, the total eclipse, which, you know, any taxi driver now is, is, is supporting. And that... Those, those kinds of campaigns, which, you know, you're finding all over the place, um, you know, often around very local sort of issues, although of issues of huge national significance, you know, is the basis of, of really a new understanding of the social uh, on which I feel that the present Labour Party can build. Um, and I think that, that, in a way, we've got to really recognise the historic importance of what John McDonnell has done with his proposals on public ownership, that, that really focus on workers' involvement and community involvement. Because while it builds on the huge gains of 1945, it also goes way beyond them. In terms, I mean, that 1945 was you know, definitely meeting the material and, and social needs of working class people. But in a way, what John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn are doing are recognizing working class people as knowledgeable, skilled, 
agents of history, you know, actually of those the people with the capacity to control their own destiny, control and, and self-govern um, public industry and, and, in effect, the state. And I think that is a huge development that, that in a way, redefines socialism. It's, it's amazing how there's been no discussion of it in the media. All the responses to John McDonald's proposals are in terms of oh my God, surely you know, the private sector is going to move away. There'll be nobody to create wealth. As if wealth is created by corporations. And John is emphasizing the way in which, in a way, we need public industries in which public control is, is, a, is, done, is, is exerted by those who create the wealth and those who, who use and, and, and depend on those public services. And that's of incredible significance. I mean, I think in a way, 45 was about recognizing the, the principle of economic equality and political equality. But now we have a Labour Party which adds to that the principle of cultural equality, the principle that, that working-class people have a capacity to, to govern themselves, to govern society. Uh, and I think that's really important, a recognition of that knowledge, which was absent. I mean, I won't go into detail because my, my new book does that, but, you know, the, the kind of arrogance, <laughs> the sort of uh, arrogance of the Fabian tradition, which did presume that ordinary people had no capacity to actually propose alternatives. They could, they could cry out in pain, but they couldn't actually construct alternatives. Therefore, we needed the experts like, like Sidney and Beatrice Webb, i.e. the Fabians. You know, whereas I think we're now seeing a complete reversal of that tradition to recognizing that expertise, that capacity, which exists amongst working class people. And in a way, surely we've got to match a leadership that has that belief with a movement and a party that is able to be a party of, of creators, not just a party of voters and, and canvassers, but a party that can actually create the alternative initiatives that, that, that the new Labour leadership will facilitate. And I think that means we've got to prepare now, and it's great that Kat's already beginning that through the People's Plan for Water. Uh, I think it has got a lot of implications for the trade unions. In a way, the trade unions have been pushed back onto the defensive. And I think now it's really important that they start producing the kind of alternatives, which they have done in the past. I mean, the CWU in the, but the beginnings of privatization began to produce alternatives around parcel force and then the privatization against the privatization of Royal Mail. But it, it never kind of became central to the dynamic of the union. So we've got a, a union, trade unionists, and we're all trade unionists, I presume, have got to recognize our unions as being not just a means of defending our present conditions, but actually they're ways of sharing the knowledge that we have as frontline workers or as users of, of public services and socializing that knowledge and turning it into the basis of alternatives. So we've all had experiences. I mean, when I, when I had, was in Newcastle where we were fighting privatization of um, new, uh, public uh, council services, IT services, and the unions, you know, the management were completely demoralized, were handing it over to BT and the union said, hang on a minute, you know, we actually, we design these technologies. We know how they could be publicly efficient. Uh, and they began to develop their own alternative plans, pulling together the, the capacity of their members. And in a way, in the end, drawing management towards them and drawing the, the, the city, the city as a whole towards them. And that led to 
the defeat of BT, uh, and now a public, um, a public IT system uh, in the council. And that, that needs to happen across the country. I think um, John McDonald particularly is beginning this process of um, popular consultation on his industrial strategy. And I think we need to be thinking how we can help with that, how we can prepare now the sort of alternatives, like, I don't know, I was thinking, what could this mean for railways? And is there a way in which we could, both as passengers, uh, you know, angry passengers, uh, and as um, workers who are kind of constantly frustrated by passengers who are angry, you know, with what's going on, but which, for which they're not responsible, you know, could come together to... To, to think of a different kind of state, how stations could be more responsive to passengers, how, you know, the franchising of um, cafes and so on could be to local cooperatives and ethical businesses rather than to Starbucks and other completely outrageous corporations. And I think if we start developing those kinds of plans which both prepare at, at, at a sort of basic level this new common sense that can help win the election, but also in a way can guide bargaining strategies so we win victories now. And I think that's a key principle of this present leadership, that they're not advocating a government of, you know, leave it to us. In a way, their commitment to workers' control over public industries is reflected in the kind of Labour Party they're encouraging us to, to build, which is one that tries to prefigure a society in which self-government, workers' democracy, popular democracy, is the basic sort of condition. And I think we must pick that up and make it a reality in our cities and in our communities. So I hope the discussion today will be not just responding to the speeches, but actually thinking what, you know, on your tables and so on, uh, you know, what could it mean in your communities? What alternatives could we prepare now? Because I think that's the only way we're going to win against the huge... You know, we saw it over the summer, you know, the, the kind of absolute determination to stop Jeremy Corbyn, to stop a party, that, a leadership that's going to really empower working people. I mean, we saw it with Tony Benn in the 70s. In a way, what, what the reaction, we must learn from that, the reaction to Tony Benn was not that, about his belief in public ownership, not about the policies, but that the processes, the fact that he he brought shop stewards into Whitehall, which is just like completely outrageous, you know, in terms of the establishment's idea of how to govern. I mean, the, you know, the Labour Party has always been seen as a form of stabilising British capitalism. And, and now we've got a leadership that's actually giving voice to the organised working class rather than providing a sort of buffer against the organised working class. But we can't just sort of support that leadership. We've got to actually do something ourselves. We've got to, to recognize ourselves as collective agents and build that solidarity in practical ways that illustrate what a, a Labour government could mean. So I want to sort of leave with a challenge that we can't just, you know, subscribe to We Own It. We've got to be participating in <coughs> We Own It. And we can't just, you know, give solidarity to our trade unions. We've got to actually turn them into agents of a different kind of public ownership. So I think my voice is telling me I'm going to stop. <laughs> um, okay, hi everybody, thank you. Um, so I'm going to stay sat down 
Um, as some of you might know, the CW, so we've got a delegation over at Labour Conference, um, and we had a party last night at the World Transformed, and I wasn't quite so sure how I should describe my need to kind of be, stay sitting down, but um, I think Kat's got a good phrase, so I had a little bit too much socialism with Sparkle last night. Um, so Hillary's laid down the gauntlet to trade unions, and you know, I'll see if I can kind of take that up um, and, and satisfy her at least. So. Um, as, as Thomas said in the introduction then, I'm going to talk about raw mail and what we've seen in raw mail with privatisation and then also the case for renationalisation of raw mail. Um, and I want to start off by saying, you know, so why is raw mail an important case? So, you know, if you're not a postal worker, if you're not from the CW, why is it something, you know, that, that you should think about? Um, so the first reason is a political one. Um, and in the past eight years, so raw mail was the flagship privatisation that we saw under the, the, the past eight years of Tory government. Um, so it's not the only sell-off that we've seen. The, the sell-off of shares in Lloyds Bank, for instance, was far more lucrative. Um, we've seen, you know, it's not the only controversial privatisation. We've seen the creeping backdoor privatisation of the NHS is a good example there. Um, but it was, you know, in terms of services that have always been in the public sector, you know, raw mail is the flagship case that we've seen in the past eight years, you know, following on from the big privatizations in the 1980s. It was sort of the outstanding service that was still left. So politically, it's an important one for us to be talking about. It was the flagship policy that we've seen. So the second reason why it's important, again, is a political one. Um, and Kat's got her poll, but I've got a different one. Um, so my poll was the one that came out during the general election um, last year when the Labour manifesto was leaked. Um, and what was striking at the time, so they asked which services should be run in public ownership. And Raw Mail came out ahead of rail, energy, water, and even the BBC. Um, now, I'm not sitting here making the case for privatisation of the BBC, and I'm certainly not going to, you know, make a trade-off between these services. But it's really just to stress that, you know, raw mail, and particularly to people in my generation who might not use raw mail and postal services as much, um, you know, it's a, it's a politically important, important case. It's one for us as Labour members to be talking about, you know, on the doorstep and when we think about our agenda for public ownership. And the third reason, again, I think is one that is, is worth stressing to kind of younger people, is that raw mail remains a key part of our national infrastructure. So, you know, with the onset of the internet, then yes, we've seen big changes in mail volumes, so decline in letter volumes in particular. But at the same time, we've seen, you know, rapidly increasing parcel volumes from, you know, so Amazon and other companies where we're ordering things from. Raw mail still delivers 16 billion items a year around the country. So that's almost 600 to every single address. Small businesses in particular rely on it. Raw Mail is the only company, whether public or private, that puts someone on every single street in the country six days a week. And it's one of the biggest employers in the country, which means so, you know, on gross value added to the economy when they look at things like tax and national insurance, Raw Mail comes fifth out of all private, all private and public organizations. So it's a key part of our national infrastructure. So those three reasons, hopefully, I've persuaded you that you know, raw mail is an important case for us to be thinking about. If I haven't, then you've got a tough 10 minutes ahead. Um, so what I want to start off by doing is talking a little bit about um, what we've seen since privatization. So privatization took place. It started off five years ago. So we're coming up to the fifth anniversary of the sell-off of raw mail shares. And most people are probably aware of what happened when the, the sell-off was first started. So 
Roma was grossly undervalued, um, and on day one, day one, the share price rose by 38%. Within three months, the share price had risen by 80%. 80%. So not only did we see a public institution, a public um, service and organization being taken out of our hands, it was done a loss of control for us. It was done so with a huge subsidy to the rich who were buying into it, and many of the banks who actually advised the government on the share price, and then were given priority status in buying up the shares. They made huge, you know, tens of millions of pounds virtually overnight for nothing. Um, so that, I think, is fairly well-known, and it's a well-known story of privatization. You know, when BT was sold off in 1984, we saw a similar jump in the share price. When British Gas was sold off in the 1980s, equally, you know, there is... I think there's a reason why the government undervalues shares because it wants to create some winners from privatization and describe it as a great success. So people are fairly well versed in that in, in Royal Mail. So I'll mention some of the other things that we might not be so aware of. So the first one is prices. So in the run-up to privatization, that was when we saw the really big price increases. So in 2011, Royal Mail increased uh, first-class mail prices by 30%. 30% in one year, second-class mail by 40% in one year. So this was part of a project to fatten raw mail up just before it was about to be sold off. Now, since then, we've seen prices going up more modestly, but still way ahead of inflation. So for your average consumer, it's about two times the rate of inflation every year. Um, for small businesses, it's about four or five times the rate of inflation. So that's fairly significant. I mean, for most of us, we might not notice that because our spend on mail is fairly low. But there's been a real trend of, you know, prices being driven up. And at the same time, what most of us have been seeing is services going in the other direction. So, you know, an important one is what happens with, so delivery and collection times. So your delivery time gets later, your collection time gets earlier. Now, if you're a small business that has got a day to turn around mail, that means you've got a really short window in which to do it. Um, so it makes life incredibly difficult for those businesses. Alongside that, since privatization, we've seen raw mail closing down and selling off over 100 delivery offices, so about 5% of the delivery office network. So these are the places where you go when you can't get a parcel, you, know, you get a, a card through your door telling you you have to go and collect it. So many people are seeing what used to be a kind of five-minute journey to go and get their parcel. Now they're spending up to an hour to go and get what's actually their possessions. They own, they bought it. Raw Mail are holding on to it, but making it incredibly difficult to get. So, as I say, price increases, service reductions. And the other thing that we've seen falling is investment. And this one's really important because, you know, the case for privatization that we were given was that privatization was going to bring new money into Royal Mail. So what we've seen is the opposite of that. So in the year before privatization, I'll take that as a benchmark. So in the five years following privatization, Royal Mail has invested less in four of those five years than it did in its last year of public ownership. Last year, Royal Mail's investment fell by £140 million. And in its annual report in 2017, it said something really interesting. Um, and it dressed it up in corporate language, but you know, you see if you can decode it. So it said, our in the future, investment has now peaked. In the future, we'll be pursuing a more efficient investment strategy in order to facilitate our progressive dividend policy. <laughs> so I think if anybody reads annual reports, you know, that's one of the more colorful quotes that you might get. Um, 
And equally, you know, with investment, what we're, what we're seeing increasingly now is raw mail looking abroad. So there's a strange situation in, in postal services where what you get is an incumbent operator here, so raw mail, for instance, and what its, its strategy for growth is going and buying up low-cost parcel operators abroad, so in Spain and Portugal. And equally, we get so foreign incumbent postal operators, so TNT or Whistle from, from the Netherlands, come over here and then they undercut raw mail. Um, so increasingly, the investment isn't going to the kinds of things that we think it should be going to. So the fourth thing that I want to mention about privatization, if I can remember it. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, it was a very good night. It's also a bit disconcerting hearing yourself in surround sound. Um, so the... the yeah, the, the fourth thing is that so consumers have, have obviously lost out with services being reduced. And the other ones, and you know, uh, I should be ashamed of myself for forgetting this, is the workers have been coming under um, considerable pressure. So last year we saw a, a national dispute in Royal Mail. And the CW, so our members, we represent about 120,000 um, people in Royal Mail. We delivered a 90% yes vote on a 74% turnout for strike action, smashing the anti-trade union laws because Royal Mail was so looking to close down its pension scheme, looking to introduce two-tier terms and conditions, putting staff under increasing pressure to work harder, faster, for less than at any time before. Now, so staff have lost out, the public have lost out, but there are two groups who haven't done too badly out of privatization. So the first are the executives. So in 2017, Moya Green, the chief executive of Royal Mail, saw her pay increase by 23% one year alone. The new chief executive who's come in this year, Rico Back, has been given a golden handshake with a 100,000 pounds increase on basic salary from Moya Green and a bonus potential 250,000 pounds a year more than she had. So the executives have done all right. And of course, the other group who haven't done too badly are the new private shareholders who are receiving dividends. So we're just coming up to the fifth anniversary of Royal Mail's privatization. And in those five years, we will have seen over a billion pounds paid out to private shareholders, five years. That's over 500,000 pounds every single day. So I'd summarize privatization in the following way. It's been extractive, it's been destructive, it's been regressive, and it's been a long way from the public interest. But there's a really important point that I want to make today, and it's this. It's not a long way from what we saw when Royal Mail was in public ownership. That's a crucial point that I think we need to recognize here. You know, public ownership is only valuable if, if, it's more, if it's about more than simply substituting the government for a private shareholder, and it represents something bigger and actually changes the way that these services are run. So, Royal Mail is a great case study for this. If you look at the way that Royal Mail was operated when it was in the, the public sector, then so the board was drawn from exclusively commercial backgrounds, no public voice, no employee voice, no trade union voice at all. Um, the government had a single seat on the board, which it didn't actually exercise any decision-making powers with. Um, equally, you know, look at the board remuneration, always follow the money, as they say. So the, the, the bonuses for executives were based not on public service, not on delivering for the rest of us, but on the bottom line and how much profit they were going to deliver. And when the government brought in a new set of management in about 2000, 
it, said to, it gave the chairman a specific mandate. So it said two things. It said, firstly, commercial freedom for Royal Mail. Run it how you want. And the second one was, your mandate is to look at the bottom line and drive up profit. So it wasn't about public service. Now, alongside that, what we had was you know, completely inadequate protection of the public interest. So there were two things here. So firstly, we had a core basic service. So what we call the universal service, your daily delivery service enshrined in legislation. So there's a legal restriction on that. Rormo has to deliver six days a week to every single address in the country. So that was a legal minimum. Um, and then, that, so that was one way they tried to protect the public interest. But that left far too much scope for Royal Mail to cut away services. So we saw deliveries being, being, being cut. We saw, um, uh, we saw jobs being lost. We saw services being scaled back in the same way that we've done in private ownership. Um, and the other thing that they did was, so they set up regulation. And the regulator was given two specific tasks. So one was to promote efficiency, which meant driving down terms and conditions for workers. And the other one was to promote competition. And when you've got a natural monopoly like mail, then that had disastrous consequences. So when we look at the public, the, when Royal Mail was in public ownership, really what we can do is divide it up into the, the boom years, I'll call it, and then the lean years. So in the boom years, when mail volumes were growing every year in line with GDP, then what we saw was money being taken out of Royal Mail. So over a 20-year period, in today's values, about £4 billion was taken out of Royal Mail, which is basically equivalent to the £200 million a year in dividends that Royal Mail is paying out to private shareholders now. So money being sucked out of the company. Equally, we saw Royal Mail taking a 13-year pension holiday that left it with the biggest pension deficit in this country. And then after those boom years, when the lean years came, while Royal Mail was still in public ownership, what we saw again was so the public and the workforce paying the price. So we saw 10,000 post offices being closed. The post office network was cut completely in half. We saw thousands of job losses every year. We saw the pension scheme being closed completely. So the picture of Royal Mail in public ownership as I say, it wasn't particularly different to the picture that we've seen in more recent years in private ownership. So for us, and this is hopefully meeting the challenge that, that Hillary has laid down, you know, when we think about renationalizing Royal Mail, and there's a commitment in the Labour Manifesto to do this, then we are very clear it can't be the old model of public ownership that we saw. We need to think very hard about new models of public ownership. And that's why the current time with the Labour leadership, with the thinking that's going on in John McDonnell and Becky Long-Bailey's offices, for instance, is so important. Now, we are at an early stage of our thinking here, and I'm not going to set out a full model. But what I'll do is I'll give you so four things that we're thinking about that we need to see when we bring Royal Mail back into public ownership. So the first one is we need a far broader range of values influencing decision-making and driving decisions than the pure profit motive that we saw previously when Royal Mail was in public ownership. So at the very core of what Royal Mail does should be connecting communities, providing services for small businesses, boosting economic growth, looking at new services it can provide. It should have a duty to, it, as one of the biggest employers in the country, mainly manual low, lower paid work, relatively, you know, less than the medium wage. Um, it should have a duty to, pr to promote and protect good employment standards. Now these things shouldn't really be controversial, um, but we need to completely change the way that some of these public services are run. So we're thinking hard about how you 
hard bake those values into decision making. So we move away from the situation where you have a public owned company which is solely focused on profit and has a public service obligation simply as a constraint on how it can make decisions. And that public service really needs to be the driving factor behind what it's doing. So alongside that, and this might be a way of how you achieve that, how you get a broader range of values, you know, we are very interested in looking at how you get a broader range of stakeholders actually deciding what Royal Mail does and making decisions. So of course, from a union perspective, you know, that we want to see you know, the workforce involved, but equally, that's got to be the public. And one of the areas that I think we all need to think hard about is you know, the different levels of, a, of an organization like Royal Mail that that takes place at. So, you know, we are now, the Labour Party is talking more about what happens at a national level. So, you know, workers on boards, for instance, or, you know, stakeholder assemblies at a national level. But actually, one of the most important things for us as individuals is what's happening to my local services. So when your delivery office or your post office closes, you know, it's no compensation to you to be told, but that decision's been made by a group of the public or stakeholders at a national level. You know, from your point of view, you need to have that say at a local level over the services that you used. And one of the points that Kat made that I think is extremely important is, you know, in the future, if we, if we get a Labour government that manages to take these services back, we need to make damn sure that when the Tories get in, they can't reprivatise them again. And one of the things that I think we can do about that is making sure that the public, that we have a genuine stake and a genuine say over what's going on. So one of the reasons I think that we've seen privatizations happen so easily is that for us as members of the public, there's absolutely no loss of voice. So you've got no less a voice in Royal Mail now than you did when it was in public ownership. Now that's a damning indictment of the model that we used to have and we need to change. So. So the third thing that we want to see is investment and innovation in Royal Mail. So there are two areas that we're particularly interested in, in pushing with Royal Mail. So the first of those is what we kind of term loosely the community role of postal workers. So, you know, postal workers have got a pretty unique status in, you know, the place, in, in people's hearts around the country. They're, they're trusted, you know, uniquely. As I said at the start, you know, no other organization puts someone on every single street in the country six days a week. And we need to build on that role because we're conscious that mail volumes are declining and that those jobs won't be around for very long unless we find additional things of value for those people to do. So France, as, as Kat was talking about, you know, provides a good example. So La Poste in France, for instance, has got a scheme with postal workers which is called um, Bonjour Factor, which means um, hello postman. Uh, so we might need to work on the title over here. Um, <laughs> But in, in short, well, it, it, they're linking up with kind of councils and postal workers are going in and they're checking in on elderly people. They're, they're providing care services. They're delivering prescriptions. Um, you know, so there's this community role that we can build on. There is a huge asset there if we start thinking about things we can do 
with the postal worker in those ways. Um, there's another, I'll, I'll mention this as well from, from France, um, there's a, actually a private service you can pay for which is called um, Surveillez mes parents, which is watch over my parents. So if you've got an elderly parent, for instance, you can, um, you know, a service you can buy in is you can pay, you know, a postal worker to go in and look, at, look in on them and see how they're doing, check that they're doing okay. So this kind of community role of the postal worker we think is, you know, got great potential in raw mail in the future. So the second area is obviously parcels, so that's the growth area. But everybody in this room who has ever ordered anything online has a horror story about the parcel that never arrives or that is left on your roof or in a bush or with the neighbor who you never talk to and you know is not gonna give it back to you. So, I mean, when I think of you know, parcel services today, I kind of think back to CFAX, right? Where you think, how did we ever get by with that. And we should be looking back on parcel services today and saying exactly the same thing, but we're not gonna get there unless Royal Mail is investing and innovating in these services. Um, so the fourth and final thing that we want to see with Royal Mail is Royal Mail brought back together with the post office in public ownership. So Royal Mail and the post office, Royal Mail's the only postal operator in the developed world that's been separated, where we've seen the mail arm separated from its retail arm. And as a result of that, the post office has effectively been put into a position of managed decline, even though it's in public ownership. So we need to see the two things being brought back together. And there's... There's an important pledge in the Labour Manifesto that you know, we, have, we probably haven't talked about enough, and that is, so Labour pledged to establish a commission to set up a post bank, words that are ingrained in my mind because we had a long negotiation over what would, would eventually be in there. Um, so we've seen successful post banks in you know, many countries around the world, so France, Italy, New Zealand, Japan, Germany. There is, you know, it's driven up revenues um, in those countries. When you think about the lack of competition that we see in the banking sector over here, when you think about the difficulties that SMEs have, there is huge potential for the post office to get into this area and provide a different kind of banking service. So the post office has got a bigger network than all of the banks and the building societies in the UK combined. At the moment, that's going to waste and it will rot on the vine unless we find other ways of using it and there'll be a huge loss of public value as a result. So a bit like Hillary, I kind of feel that my voice is beginning to give up, which is probably time to stop. So I'll just summarize by saying, you know, what we've seen with privatization of raw mail, it's been extractive, destructive, it's been socially regressive, but it hasn't been, and it hasn't been, and it's a long way from the public interest. At the same time, it hasn't been a long way from what we saw with raw mail in public ownership. So we're clear when raw mail is taken back by labor, when it's renationalized, we need a new model, we need democratic governance of a company like raw mail, so it delivers for the many, not the few. Great, so we're gonna take questions. We're gonna take them in groups of three, and we have some roving mics, so I think someone's gonna pass them around. Just you, okay. So down here in the front, in the black, uh, in the back with the glasses. 
Um, and uh, middle table over here. Thank you. I'm Paul Allen from the Centre for Alternative Technology in MacUntleth from the Zero Carbon Britain project. And it feels to me very much like 1945, where we had to rebuild Britain. We had a massive task. We have to rebuild Britain to deliver on our climate commitments to the Paris Agreement. That just doesn't mean energy. That means thinking about transport. That means thinking about buildings, food, diets, natural climate systems to lock up carbon. Massive amounts of work to do. If we can do that through a democratic public ownership process, we can maximize the multi-solving, the additional health benefits, the cleaner air benefits, and we can create social license for what is the most rapid transformation Britain will ever have to go through. So we've done the zero carbon Britain scenarios to begin opening conversations about what that means, but I welcome your reflections on how that can be done through democratic public ownership and particularly the multi-solving. What was the last bit? Uh, thank you. I'm uh, Daniel Frost on the New Socialist Editorial Team. Um, Kat, uh, Kat gave us a list of, you know, the kind of previously publicly owned industries and, and how much public support there is for them to be taken back. And I think, of course, that's excellent. But you used the term uh, mixed economy. And I, I wonder if there's a danger that we kind of, we get back to where we were, but we, we sort of reinforce the division between the public and the private. Um, you know, if you can only afford to get clothes in Primark, then that's also a, natu a natural monopoly. And if you can only get food in Lidl, then that's also a natural monopoly. And, you know, your, if your daily newspaper has to be free and therefore it's the metro, it's a natural monopoly. And if you get a sausage roll and, and a coffee from a popular baker's, that's also a natural monopoly. And, you know, in, in the 1940s and 50s, we had publicly owned restaurants, um, but it, it was never really that successful. But... I wonder if the, if the panelists have anything to say about how when we're talking about, you know, renationalizing uh, Royal Mail or, or, or water, how we can also get people to think about what other things that have never been nationalized could also be publicly owned. Hello. Oh, blimey. <laughs> Sublime to the ridiculous, is it? Um, Roy Wambourne from uh, West Ham CLP and also a member of the Communication Workers Union. Um, I think there are two issues here. One is the um, campaign that we need to wage on the um, importance of public ownership and that the public own ownership can be much more successful than private ownership because you are um, using uh, um, you, the, 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 the objectives are not to just to make money, but to do what's best for the industry and invest in the industry. And that that has to be, as the comrades have already said, it's got to be a different way, not a token workers on the board, but it's got to be consumers and, and workers and, and, and customers, uh, uh, people who are actually running these industries. Uh, not just token consultation or token worker on the board. But I think you can't uh, um, discuss this without discussing how far we go, like the last speaker suggested, on how far we step with privatisation. 
Um, what we've got on the table at the moment is not even going to take us back where we were in 1980. Um, one example, of course, is the telecom side um, of the post office, as it was then. Um, so we've got to talk, you know, we've got to think a step further, I think, when we consider what the, the nature of the, the public sector will be, because with the current proposals, it's still going to be the, the, the private sector, and with most of the banks still in place, it's going to be the dominant part still of the economy. So how is that going to work? If they can't do it now, how are they going to do it then? In my view, is we need to move towards and be prepared, as the scouts say, you know, for a, 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 a big problem when we get into it. And nationalising one or two uh, things isn't going to be good enough. We should be able to step forward. Are we going to really rely on the, the, the private corrupt building companies to build the houses that we want at the right prices, or are, or are we going to set a public sector now as construction company to work with councils and direct labour organisations to build those homes on a crash programme, which is that's what it will need. And what about a, um, a public sector pharmaceutical company? You know, why, why, are the, why has the NHS got to pay right through the nose for the drugs now. Why aren't we talking about that? In fact, why aren't we talking about um, a, a public sector company in every sector of the economy? And it doesn't just have to be renationalisation. It can be new public sector companies that put a challenge down to the, to the, uh, the private sector, and this is how we're going to do things. So I'm not suggesting we can do everything in the first day we get into office. But we have to be prepared and we have to be discussing what we're going to do when the shit starts hitting the fan and the economy's not picking up. Um, so, amazing questions. Um, coming back on the first one, climate change and the need for zero carbon Britain, I think we need people's knowledge, and that's something that we're talking about in terms of democratising, bringing in the knowledge of people like you and people who have some idea how we get to zero carbon Britain is really super important. Um, planning, I think public ownership enables us to plan. It enables us to do the kind of long-term investment that we need instead of just being driven by short-term profit cycles. So I think that's vital. Um, I do think there's potentially a bit of a tension between, if I'm being honest, between you know, the immediate results that we might get as the public, say lower energy bills, and making sure we have a sustainable energy strategy. How do we work that out? We work it out in practice. We've got different levels. We've got you know, national, regional, local levels. We've got, we've got to have democracy, but we've got to have efficiency. I, I don't have any massive answers on that, but I think it's got to be worked out in practice with all of the knowledge that, that's on the table. Um, the gentleman over there on the mixed economy, yes. So I think... Okay, I think there's a really interesting conversation about the commons that is broader than public services. So at We Own It, we talk about public services and we focus on that because we're not talking about all of the commons. You know, all of the natural resources that we share or should share, don't currently share. You know, there is a bigger conversation about what the commons means and about the role of the state, and that is huge. Um, so, you know, do we want to nationalise Greggs? Do we want to nationalise Weatherspoons? Um, do we want to nationalise Tesco's? Yeah, I would, say, I would say yes. And I think also 
There's an important conversation here about co-ops, because I think often co-ops are assumed to be the answer and the new public ownership. But actually, I would say we, have a, we need to have a really strong public sector for public services, and then why not turn something like Tesco or Weatherspoons into a cooperative that is run by its workers and, and have many more co-ops in the economy? Um, I think also we need to be thinking about kind of new commons that are emerging that are somewhere between the commons and public services. So all of the internet monopolies that really dominate our lives, you know, things like Facebook, um, you know, where we spend huge amounts of time and actually it's definitely a monopoly. Uh, you're kind of, you don't have that much choice about getting involved. Many people feel they don't. Arguably, there's always got to be a public space online where we can all hang out. Um, and yet, we don't set the rules of the game. Zuckerberg does. He's making 50% profit margins, and he's running it for the benefit of advertisers, not for communities, not for us. So that has to change. I don't know how. We do not have a campaign strategy to take down Zuckerberg, sadly. Um, but it's got to be a conversation that we need to start, because in the internet and, and data, these are huge forms of, of power that we don't have any control of, and we need to. Um, and also new technologies that are emerging like driverless cars. You know, so you've got um, tech companies plowing in huge amount of investment because they think they're going to introduce driverless cars onto our streets. And we're not really having a conversation in the public sector about, okay, what are the terms and conditions under which they can do that? How does that fit in with increasing walking and cycling? How do we make sure that public transport remains at the heart of our cities or, or, or becomes more at the heart of our cities if we've got these driverless cars being introduced? It's not a fantasy. It's really going to happen, and we're not prepared for it at all. So I think there's, there's all of these things that we need to be thinking about. I do think some of your examples are about poverty and the lack of choice that comes with poverty. I think that's capitalism, and I think the reason that I'm excited about public services is because I think it's such a leverage point where it's really hard for the elites to deny, actually, the case for public ownership of public services. It's incredibly popular, and it's a leverage into a broader conversation about what the economy should look like, about the commons, about the role of the state. Um, and just to the um, gentleman over there, yeah, I mean, when Carillion collapsed, why didn't the government step in and take it over and run it as a publicly owned company. Obviously, we know why, but that would be terrific. Um, and a publicly owned farmer is absolutely vital because the drugs that the NHS has to buy are completely unaffordable. Someone on the panel earlier said that remunicipalization wasn't a great word. It's more than, you know, not being able to pronounce it. It's also about taking something back. So I think a couple of the questions go to expanding public ownership into new sectors. So municipalization rather than remunicipalization. And just to give a couple examples, again, from the U.S. experience, in recent years, we've had about 700 cities establish local publicly owned internet networks in the United States. That's a new sector of public ownership, public banking as well. So I think we really need to think about and take a, a sectoral look at the economy the US economy, the British economy, and see where are the examples, where are the options for increased public ownership. I mean, we have city-owned hotels in the United States, city-owned convention centers. Those are new things. City ownership of land and how you use land, I think, is an interesting example as well. Do either of you want to comment on those questions, or should we open it back up? Um, well, I've got one or two thoughts, but I mean, I'm sure. so many people, we could get there. Okay, we're going to open it back up. 
um, in the red here, one in the way back, hand up, um, and the woman here. Hi, yeah. Um, so I voted for Jeremy Corbyn to end austerity. And I want It's going. Oh, it's back. Um, I wanted to talk about the tax fund. Okay, my name's Andy Westrike, I'm from Yeovil BLP. Um, it's about competition. Uh, you mentioned the possibility of league tables between uh, water companies. And in, when I was listening about the Royal Mail, I was thinking about how in the old days, um, they were the only people who delivered parcels, and that's really changed. And uh, of course, uh, with your model that you've mentioned, there's still gonna be competition with all the others. Um, and then I was starting to think about competition and cooperation as two drivers and thinking about how thinking's changed in terms of Darwinism and biology, you know, that it's not all about the scientist and the, the competition. There's also a lot of thinking now about how um, evolution's come about through cooperation. So cooperation is a very big driver and it fits very well with, with democracy and it fits well with a lot of what you're saying about different interest groups having a say in Paris water and so forth. So um, it strikes me that Hello. Oh. <laughs> Sarah Perigo from Leeds. Um, I just want to, I mean, I agree with everything that's been said, and I'm very supportive of bringing organisations back into public enterprise. But I think 
what we, one of the things we really need to do is to link this campaign and these campaigns with the whole idea of transforming politics, which would relate to changing the political system in all sorts of radical ways. We live in one of the most centralized political systems in Europe and in the world. And actually, we need to take very seriously the whole issue of empowering cities, of regionalism, devolution, which actually shifts shift, shift power away from the center into the region, not, and not just power, but resources. And that empowers people's voices. So that when you have people on board, they actually relate to their neighborhoods, their places where they live, in all sorts of ways. And I think two things need to work together. Thank you. Great. Um, so I want to link one or two of the questions. So the question about carbon, uh, about uh, climate change and moving towards a low carbon economy, in a way raises, links into the question of um, going beyond the mixed economy because it raises the fact or highlights the fact that the, the social goals that we must now address, in, in a way your, terms, your point about the social values, public values that must be built into any rethinking of public ownership, are far wider. You know, in 45, it was mainly about um, addressing poverty, you know, appalling, I mean, which is still a problem, and appalling housing conditions, which is still a problem, also pollution, which is even more of a problem. But now we have the whole problem of climate change, which can only be addressed through public action. You know, any persistence of the, mar of the private dominated market is going to make things worse. It requires the overview or the underview, i.e. the knowledge of the people to, and the power of the state backing that knowledge to address this. And uh, similarly, you know, there's the whole issue of pollution, which particularly if you live in London or any of the big cities, I mean, it is, it is killing people. And then the whole issue of food safety and the, the, the profit-driven agricultural um, companies and profit-driven retail companies and profit-driven food companies, which is destroying our health. And everybody knows that. In a way, the new generation of, of, of radical activists have been radicalized as much by issues of um, the environment, food, pollution, carbon change, as by issues of economic inequality. And so that means that we have to look at all the forms of public power we have to uh, shift the economy. And in a way, the more that we um, demonstrate in practice, whether through campaigns now or through the, the actions of a Labour government, uh, that the public, public mechanisms, public institutions, including cooperative, commons-based um, organisations, can address these problems, the more we, we, we build the base to expand public ownership into um, the production of food, into the production of bread, into retail, and so on. And so I think we've got to look at you know, all our public powers, I think the experience that people are beginning to understand and spread more and more of, of the Preston, what's called the Preston model, where, where public procurement is used to address issues of inequality, poverty, unemployment. But that model of public procurement, which is huge, I mean, not, it, and it'll be even bigger, you know, when we have the kind of uh, expansion of public ownership. So that would mean that the water companies, the, the public water companies, the public 
um, rail companies, all the public utilities, would be procuring uh, on the basis of climate change problems, on the basis of addressing pollution, addressing food problems. So they'd be required to, to pr procure only from healthy food companies. This would become a, a criteria and a, a set of values that would begin to dominate the economy. So I think if we think in terms of institutions um, based on this first wave of public ownership that, as you put it, hard... What did you call it? Hard... Hard-bake. Hard-bake <laughs> hard these values which go beyond the values of the 45 government and address the modern threats to life and to the planet, then I think we can, we can build a movement which makes public ownership of the whole economy and socialism with a sparkle, you know, a real possibility. Um, so that's, and I think that links into Sarah's point about um, political reform, because it, in a way, um, I was impressed by um, Andrew's point about it's not enough to simply talk about democratization of the, the national structures of the uh, public industries, that actually it's at a local level that these multifaceted needs and problems arise. You know, so if you think about the whole waste issue, I mean, the other group of people who come onto our streets, if not every day, but every week, you know, are the dustbin, the garbage, the dustbin men. And, you know, they're not given any value. You know, there's no recognition that they know, like most of us know, the problems of waste and the, the kind of pollution, you know, inherent in the way in which waste is organised. And if they were given real power and empowered to, to support the community, to... Uh, deal with its waste in an environmentally um, safe and actually economically productive way. That could be a huge improvement. So if you had a real a kind of devolution and political democracy from an economic needs point of view, in a way it's almost like the logical extension of John McDonnell's economic democracy strategy, that that requires political democracy and in a sense it's interesting that the commitment to constitutional reform that's in the manifesto and has been part of Labour's commitments hasn't really got off the ground and I, I sort of feel that that's because it's not needs based, I mean constitutional reform in abstract is never going to get anywhere but if constitutional reform is related to the, the need for real power over our public money over our public institutions, then I think it would get somewhere. So I don't have solutions except to say that's the direction we need to go. And I think that applies also to the other source of public power. I mean, public procurement is prim primarily local, and that, so that's one case for, for local power. Another one that needs to be localised, and I think this is in John McDonnell's vision, is the whole idea of investment banks, which again would be a a kind of instrument for creating new public industries. The, the comrade that talked about expanding the public sector, you know, in a way, the, the, the new public investment bank could be creating new public companies that then become an example or supporting public cooperatives in the way that Kat outlined. And that could then be sort of a beacon for a public alternative. But again, that would be much more effective if those public companies were locally, you know, locally controlled and related to a, an intimate knowledge of local needs. 
So those are just some attempts to answer all the questions in one <laughs> flow of consciousness. Um, so I wanted to come back on something that I didn't catch. A gentleman at the back said, um, I think about, you know, we let Corbyn and McDonald get away without kind of pledging more to the NHS. I think it's important to kind of keep in mind that, like, I think that's a little bit uncharitable, to be honest. Um, we had a snap election. Uh, the Labour leadership had been under constant attack from their own side for two years. And, you know, we were all rushing to put that manifesto together. Um, and I don't think any of the rest of us kind of, you know, who are putting pressure on the Labour Party and who, who want to see these things have let, let them get away with anything. You know, I think this is on the agenda. Um, and equally, it's important to recognise, you know, that actually, I think one of the main, you know, the important things that John McDonald did was to publish the costings for the Labour Manifesto, to nail the Tory lie, um, you know, that we couldn't afford this. Um, I think that was actually quite an important thing. So I wouldn't agree with you. And equally, um, you know, when you say we're focusing too much on, on ownership and public ownership, again, I would disagree kind of fairly strongly on that one. So I, from our point of view, I think the big failing of the Labour governments from 1997 to 2010 was that we thought far too little about ownership and power in the economy. Um, so we're quite good at redistribution, um, you know, through child tax credits. We had good ideas like Sure Start. Socially, we were very progressive, but we did very little about, you know, employment rights, about trade union rights, about economic democracy. Um, and I think we've got, so both Martin and Martin O'Neill and Joe Guinan, pronouncing that correctly? here, who wrote um, a really interesting article in Renewal Journal um, about Labour's institutional turn and the importance of the thinking that's going on in terms of economic democracy, shifting the balance of forces, um, and some of the most interesting ideas that are coming out now around that. So, you know, workers on boards, a third of workers on boards um, in the private sector, um, you know, the inclusive ownership funds, we would like to see Labour going a lot further than, than uh, the pledge this week, but that's a, you know, these are huge, huge important things. Improving trade union rights, access to workplaces, sectoral collective bargaining, um, you know, these kind of things, genuinely, like one of them on its own isn't a game changer, but taken together with public ownership, with uh, regional development, the national investment banks, they will deliver a fundamental shift in the economy um, that I think is really important. Um, I'm kind of going to stop there, but equally I would say, um, you know, when we think about, so, you know, broadband's been mentioned, and we've got members in BT, and, um, you know, kind of strangely enough, BT was privatised, and now, if we want to see the investment in next generation broadband, it actually only happens when the government puts money up, and it's, it, and then BT is bidding for it, it's the only organisation that can do it on a scale. So BT used to be in public ownership, now it's taking public money, and it, in order to do it in the private sector. So. Again, it's another kind of case of, of failed privatization, but we shouldn't only be thinking about renationalization here. There are other things on the agenda and across the private sector. So, you know, whether we're thinking about renationalizing Greg's or not, we need to be thinking about changing the way that Greg's is run and all businesses are run. Um, you know, because I don't think we can expect to go into government and do all of these things overnight, but we do have a really important agenda for shifting power, even if we're not talking about renationalize everything. Um, 
I want to say something slightly different on the NHS um, to the guy at the back. Um, I am worried about Labour and the NHS. I don't know enough about it. We work with lots of NHS campaigners and they know much more about it. But what I do know is that our NHS is vastly underfunded compared to other European countries. And that is why it's falling apart. And that is why the private sector has an open door. And I think Labour needs to be really, really ultra clear on that. I would never lay the blame at McDonnell and Corbyn's door. I think they're doing an incredible job. Um, but I don't think that everyone in Labour is sufficiently on board about what is needed for our NHS. And I think it's quite scary and it's something where we really all need to put the pressure on and make sure they understand what's needed and they're up for the challenge of reinstating our NHS because that's what's required. It wasn't that long ago that Labour was feeling nervous about using words like reinstating. And it's because of the hard work of NHS campaigners putting this on their agenda that now Labour's using that language. But we've been working with Keep Our NHS Public and Our NHS and um, Health Campaigns Together, all the different ones, and using their knowledge to basically build a bit of a platform for something that we call NHS Take Back around the time of the conference last year. And we basically boiled down... Um, Alison Pollock's bill, which some of you will be familiar with, which is brilliant, into five very simple pledges about what's needed for the NHS to get private companies out. And we still don't have Labour MPs signed up to that. We finally got John Ashworth signed up to it, but we've got less than a third of Labour MPs have signed this take-back pledge that is supported by all NHS campaigns, and we can't get anywhere with it. We can't make any progress on it, and I don't know why. So I think it's really important that everyone who cares about the NHS really does push on Labour. And I'm not, I'm not criticising Corbyn and McDonnell here, and I know that their hearts are in the right place, but not everyone is on the same page with this. Um, so I think that's really vital. Um, and you can look up NHS Take Back on our website. Um, and contact your MP if they're Labour. Why haven't they signed it? Okay, it, you know, it's, it's just a pledge, but it's about an indication of willingness that this is the way forward. Um, on the question of um, competition and cooperation, um, so it's really interesting, isn't it? So Welsh Water is a not-for-profit company. Scottish Water is publicly owned. Northern Ireland Water is publicly owned. There is, there is an interesting thing, which is that they're not all equal. So Scottish water is much better than Northern Ireland water. And Welsh water was kind of, um, its structure was changed because the private company messed up. And so it was saddled with a huge amount of debt of the private company. But it's not publicly owned. It's better um, than private, but it's, it's a community, in, uh, community interest company. I think I'll double check that. Um, so I think there are some comparisons to be made, and we've put in our People's Plan for Water, tell us what you think about these companies, because while we don't want competition exactly, we need accountability mechanisms. So, I mean, the idea about comparing water companies was really just off the top of my head starting to think about this, and I think it's a conversation we all need to be having. But it is, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what do we think about humans? Do we think that competition is a driver as well as cooperation? I'm definitely with you. Um, you know, Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society, and we're always banging on about, yes, there bloody well is. 
Um, there is such a thing as society, and I think most people want to go to work to solve problems and look after people and do a good job and be part of something. And I think that's a huge driver in being human. But also, as somebody who started a small organization, I'm, I have some sense of what small business owners go through and the drivers that they're subject to. And I think it's complicated. I know that's not a neat answer, but I do think it's complicated. And I think we can use the best of different mechanisms to create really strong institutions. Um, and just finally, on the transforming politics idea, um, devolution was mentioned. And in a panel I was in yesterday, um, someone said, we need to stop talking about devolution. I'd be interested in your ideas, Hillary, because it sort of implies that it's being given away um, and actually, it should, have, it, it should be, power should be local in the first place. Um, and partly for that reason, we, we never talk about um, renationalizing because we recognize public ownership can be national, regional, local, and it's not going back. So, how do we take that forward? Um, I don't know, but maybe that's one way of thinking about it. We're just about at the end of our time. Um, I just want to leave you with one thing from my perspective from the U.S. that people have heard me say before, and it goes to this question about power. In the U.S., our local councils, we have a lot of power, but we don't have any ideology. Over here, you have the ideology, but you don't have the power. <laughs> so let me have, ask for a round of applause for our panelists and for the volunteers at the World Transform.